Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Mount Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, and joining me as always every other week, except for Thanksgiving holidays because things got a little bit wacky here, is Lori Fitzpatrick with TD Wire. Lori, welcome back. Always a pleasure to get a chance to chop it up with you about the NFL, and we certainly have some fun topics today, ranging from the Dolphins' offense to the Lions' offense. Um, some of the backup quarterbacks who've played reasonably well. What do we think about T.Y. Hilton joining the Cowboys? Little little T-Law, some players that we think are going to rebound, some that might come back to earth. So, Lori, let's kick it off with a uh, let's kick it off with uh, the Miami Dolphins. You wrote you wrote an article that appeared in T.D. Wire this week. And I urge everybody to go over there and check out the fine work that she does over there. She had a really great piece on Trevor Lawrence. And I think we'll probably touch upon that a little bit later as well. But what do you see with the Dolphins offense over the past couple of weeks? Because it seems like that there's been some struggles there. Yeah, there certainly has been. It seems like the San Francisco 49ers just opened up. Uh, I don't, I don't want to say expose them. Um, because there's not a lot of defenses that can play up to the sim- same level as the 49ers. Um, but they certainly uh, shut down the two main guys, uh, which obviously is Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. Uh, and the Dolphins haven't really adjusted. Uh, I, I, I guess I could say Mike McDaniel hasn't really adjusted. It seems like they're still just trying to force the ball uh, into uh, Hill's hands. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to this, the same old slants and uh, dagger concepts. Uh, but when you have defenses that can that can bracket those guys, uh, a.k.a. double team them uh, and just really step into those zones and throw some really good disguises in pre-snap and, and, and they're able to adjust when they throw in the motions, um, then it gives to a... Like, it, it forces Tua to really have to sit back and read the defense. And I don't think his offensive line is good enough, and I don't think he's good enough right now. Um, I think that they're scheming. Uh, they're, they're just putting a lot of focus in getting open Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell, and they've completely abandoned Mike Gusecki. This guy has gone four weeks without a catch. Isn't that crazy? Like a, a yeah. catch. Like he only had four targets. Either it was the last four weeks or the last three weeks, but same difference. You know, it's just, they're just completely abandoning him, the, the middle of the field with him. And, you know, that's an area that Tua has always struggled throwing in is the middle of the field. Uh, like he, he, you know, he obviously, yeah, his accuracy is everybody kind of uh, jumped on that bandwagon, you know, before the season started and he shows that he has good accuracy, but. Accuracy is a lot different than touch. Yeah. You know, and being able to drop it in there uh, right over top of the linebackers, uh, you know, within that between the second and third level of the defense and, and put it to the middle of the field, uh, that's been tough for them. So they really just tried to motion Gusecki out wide, and they'll have Waddle and, and Hill both in the slots, and they'll basically just run. The defenses will man up Gusecki on the outside, take him completely out of the play. Then they'll uh, bracket the two best players on the Dolphins' offense, and they haven't been running the ball well, and that's it. That's all that defenses have been doing the last two weeks 
uh, to shut down the Dolphins. And so uh, I think right now, Tua is playing the worst two games of his career. I think he he's like averaging like a 70 QB passer rating. Um, the, the completion percentage is pretty low. Uh, so, you know, they're going to have to do a lot to kind of get uh, the Dolphins back up to speed. And I think that that's going to that's going to be they're going to put a lot on the, the, the backfield in order to be able to get that done, I think. I think it's interesting some of the points that you bring up in terms of like Jacecki not really getting anything over the past three weeks. So I just was taking a quick look to say, hmm, you know, I don't remember them checking the ball down a lot either. And when you look over the past three weeks, mm -hmm. the running backs have had five receptions for 35 yards. That's not much. So for wow. out of three weeks that, you know, it like you're saying, it does seem very much all or nothing. And then when you combine the fact that Waddle has been a little banged up a couple of weeks ago, you wonder how banged up he actually is. Um, that's part of it. And then I saw some really nice analysis from um, Brandon Solak, from Ben Solak um, over at the Ringer talking about this game, about the Chargers game. And he was and he was showing a nice breakdown about how Brandon Staley um, basically put inside leverage over the concept that they like to run with that kind of wheel route where where, you know, Hill works around that, that mm -hmm. dagger. Right. You know, so and they're they're doing that. And then they said and then he was like, so, you know, they clouded that up in the middle and, and he shouldn't have thrown it in the middle. Jacecki was there open and he didn't target him. And then the next play he showed, which was interesting, was here's McDaniel drawing it up where now they ran out concepts with that rather than breaking it in. And they broke um, Hill outside and they broke um, Waddle um, really more back to the quarterback rather than out. It was kind of more one of those breaks that, that's back, but more of leaning towards the outside. And to a, in that particular situation, his point was, was that Tua hitched twice and then decided to take off and run rather than throw it. Now, I think his overall point makes total sense. Ben's great, and his and you should be following him and reading his work at The Ringer. And, and if you follow me on Twitter, you know I like making fun of Ben all the time about how short he is. So, like, we joke around about that, and we have a good-natured kind of thing back and forth with each other about Wait, stuff. isn't he, like, really tall? No, he's not. What? I don't think, no, he's not. He's short. I don't what? know. Maybe. No, I'm pretty maybe, sure he's tall. Maybe he's tall. Maybe I just thought he looked short because I saw him riding around in a trunk in the senior bowl and he got out of a trunk like he was in a clown car. So maybe that was a <laughs> perception. I don't know. So, but we do. I think he's short, but, um, but we'll, now I don't know. I'm confused. Yeah. Yeah. I think he's pretty short. We'll ask Mark Schofield next time I, I have him on. Um, but, but the point being with, with Ben is like what I'm going to criticize about what he showed is really one small aspect. And like I said, all due respect to what he's, he's saying, it's great. I only differ with the outcome on one part of the play because the throw that he showed was literally a 30 yard out route against man coverage that had pretty good trail technique on it that like maybe Josh Allen, maybe Matt Stafford, Maybe Aaron Rodgers, as my buddy Chad Ryder would say in his prime, might have made that 30-yard out from the opposite hash and got it there before the trail coverage gets there. So while 
you know, Ben was saying you have to make that throw and was kind of laughing about what two was doing. I think in theory, in the concept of like when they do have outbreaking routes like that, at maybe 15, 20 yards, yeah, maybe you got to make that throw. But at 30, there's three NFL quarterbacks who might be able to make that. But the point being is, is yeah. that the Chargers knew that about Tua's arm limitations and about most quarterbacks' arm limitations. And, you know, there are some – you're going to draw up that play and hope that maybe the receiver breaks wide open on that. And if he does, great, you can target it. If not, then you can, there's three other options at least on that route that you could – you could possibly go to and with Tua they knew that they're like let's take away primarily Hill and see how he reacts to that and he made a good play but there are going to be other plays that maybe where it breaks open a little bit shallower um, that maybe he should make that throw and he doesn't but the but part of that to me is that's the interesting thing about the analysis with this is because I think you're absolutely I agree with you completely about the idea that Tua, one, defenses are beginning to adjust to Tua after several weeks. Usually it takes the NFL about eight weeks of, uh, you know, to really start to review what they're seeing with the new offense and scouts to begin accumulating that data to put in the tape. And, you're, and then you see it kind of layered on top of each other from team to team. And I think by the time you get to weeks 12, 13, 14, 15, there's enough tape that of not only what they've seen early in the season, but what teams have started to do successfully against them later, that the teams that are playing in the back half of the year can start to to layer ideas on that work against the player and kind of develop a new book against what the offense is doing. And now it's time for the offense to have to respond. And I think we're mm -hmm. at the stage right now with McDaniel that he hasn't quite, maybe he and Tua haven't quite fully responded yet or figured out a way to respond to some of those looks just in the same way that if we look at um, Sean McVay a few years ago when he went to the Super Bowl that season where they went to the Super Bowl and lost to Belichick there was a game I think it was week 12 or week 13 against the Lions Matt Patricia's Lions where the Lions completely took away all the screen concepts that that the um that the Rams were using successfully with Gurley. And they just, they completely took it away. They got pressure early on golf. They, they hung back in a way to be able to eliminate that. And Sean McVay did not have an answer for it at all. And they didn't have an answer for it against the Bears in the following week or the Eagles the week after that. I think it was that order. And so then when he comes into the, the Super Bowl against Belichick, one of the big criticisms that you could see when you watch that tape was that Sean McVay didn't adjust his game plan at all or tweak anything at all to face Belichick, which is kind of like going into a chess match thinking you can win playing checkers, you know, against that guy. And, and Belichick stopped everything that they were doing and they just kept running the same thing, didn't make a lot of adjustments or even any adjustments that you would have had to be able to do ahead of time. And he got really humbled in that game. And you could even see... The next year when Gurley, you know, when Gurley was back, that they ran, it took him nine weeks to adjust to defenses playing. I think it was the tight fronts where basically they were eliminating, they were using basically a, an alignment that you would commonly see in high school to stop zone, outside wide zone. And teams were having success with it. And the, the Rams were five and four um, 
until Sean McVay decided to actually run gap plays that were favorable to, mm-hmm. to do this. And it, it took them till halftime of the Steelers game to, to do this. And they didn't make the playoffs that year. And a lot of that was slow adjusting. So I wonder, you know, the thing that I, that I look at this and link that to McDaniel is, do you think that maybe McDaniel, as much as he's being regarded as a, as a coaching whiz and certainly deservedly so to get to the point that he is in the same way that it was for McVay who everyone got all, you know, kind of celebritized him as a coach in his first year or two. Do you think that this is the point where, you know, he's having trouble kind of adjusting or he's going to have, you know, this is the point that like, kind of like McVay, you know, we, we give too much love to these guys until we see how they do in the adjustment phase of football. So I think it's a, it's a little tough to say, right? Because um, I just want to give him the benefit of the doubt because it is his first year Yeah. Uh, on that team. So I think like it, it's hard to have like a playbook that's in your back pocket that maybe worked last year. And, like, you tried to use it, so then you switched. And now, like, eight games have gone by and maybe you have to go back. He just maybe doesn't have that yet because he's still so new with this team. Um, But he should have at least, like, put more back-end plays, uh, like, in. They should be practicing or implementing new plays each week um, that, like, okay, you know, we're, we're not going to run this this week, but, you know, we have it in our back pocket. Because I don't, like you said, I didn't even, I'm so upset that I didn't put this in my article about what you mentioned about the running backs only getting five passes out of the backfield. Like, they should be running more screens. Uh, they should, you know, they should be pulling the defenses up more uh, and then going deep uh, with either that, that third wide receiver or someone like Gusecki. I just, you know... It's just tough that it's just tough because McDaniel hasn't really been there uh, for longer. I think next year we'll have a better idea, um, you know, if he is if he's going to earn that like genius name that everybody is throwing out there for him. Um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of see how it goes. But you know, you look at Doug Peterson, and it's the total opposite. You know, he's been able to adjust. He's been able to do that, but he's also already a Super Bowl winning coach, so. It's hard to kind of compare them to, but and and part of what you're saying too, and I think you're right about we need to be fair about this to Mike McDaniel because this is his first year with two as well, and with this offense and this personnel, and he's got to see how his team this team adjusts to things, and it's their first time having to make these types of adjustments that happen during the season. So expecting them to be like a well-oiled machine to the level of being able to make these type of adjustments year one, I think. While the fan base and probably a lot of commentators would say, well, that's perfectly fair, I would say it's a little unrealistic. Um, and I think that <laughs> probably next year, mm-hmm. next year is a different story. If they can't make the, the adjustments around this time next year and they're continuing to f- falter, then that says something maybe about how they manage this or the, the quality of the players in terms of their ability to you know, yeah. like a guy like Tung Vailoa, can he make yeah, too. The, the adjustments? So that's the that's the big deal there. But I, I got to ask you, you know, we I touched upon McVeigh, and it's obviously a player who I think kind of got the shaft a little bit from the beginning of his career moving forward 
was Jared Goff. I mean, I, no, mm-hmm. he's not a superstar. Has he had a Pro Bowl season? Absolutely. Um, and he played well enough to execute Sean McVay's system to get in the Super Bowl. But the idea that he was like some puppet with Sean McVay, you know, with the strings and basically saying, you're basically a mannequin who can throw the ball and we're going to, you know, I'm the brains behind this entire outfit and you can't handle things. I feel like that was a little bit of an over and I may be making a hyperbolic characterization of what some of the media has done to criticize him, but it felt that way to me in some ways, even if it was kind of more of a poetic truth than a literal one. Um, But with McVeigh, I just feel like too, you got to understand that we just, I just highlighted how in love he was with his scheme early on. And a lot of these West coast offensive coordinators are known among quarterback coaches and quarterbacks for being kind of like seeing their players as like basically pixels on a video game when they run the controls. Um, and I've heard it described as that. And, and with people who've been, who've been close to coordinators and coaches along the lines of McVay and Shanahan, who are, you know, obviously recognized for their skill with, with creating schemes. But at the same time, their downfall can be, I'm so attached to it that, you might even enable a young quarterback by trying to be ahead of the curve of feeding them information in their helmet, but not letting them organically learn some of the things that they need to learn. And then you kind of cut them off at the knees on their ability to develop that faster. That's kind of the argument I've had with golf is that they made him seem like he was, you know, again, like Sean McVay was somehow like a quarterback ventriloquist and, and now he goes to the Lions and everybody sees him as a one-year bridge. Now we're in year two. And are we now looking at this after, you know, them going five and one out of the past six games, taking Buffalo to the brink, whipping the Jaguars, and then also beating a very good Vikings team. If their, their past defense is awful, um, you know, their, their offense is doing what it needs to do. And golf is a big part of that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, do you think, what do you think? We've got a rich class of quarterbacks coming in. Do you think that Jared Goff deserves another year? Do you think they should draft a a quarterback? What would you do if you were the Detroit Lions GM? So if, you know, all the points that you're making are, you know, dead, dead on accurate. Um, I was going to make a My Cousin Vinny references there, but. (laughs) <laughs> dead, dead on accurate. Uh, but I think that like McVeigh, like he, he was basically, I can't work with this guy, you know, and kind of shipped him off. And it was kind of similar to like a Geno Smith situation where like, if you just put the guy in, in a system and allow him to kind of show you what his skill set is, like, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to change your whole playbook for this guy. Um, but you're, you know, it, it's a little bit of give and take that needs to happen in order for quarterbacks to flourish. Like, you know, right now, Jared Goff, I think he's like eighth overall in total yards. He's 22 touchdowns, seven interceptions. Like, the the, the scores that they, they that they've put up, I'm just gonna read them off. 35 points week one, 36 points week two, 24, 45. They put on Seattle. 
27, 31, 31, 34, 40 points. Like, how do you put up this many points? Like, I don't know. They, and, and, and still get all those losses. But they're they're definitely on the right track now. Sorry, go ahead. No, but I'm, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's like I, one of the things that I – is and you to add your point, you lose TJ Hawkinson, one of your most reliable yeah. receivers, to a trade. You don't have DJ Chark for most of the year until two weeks – three weeks ago. He just finally mm-hmm. comes back. So you don't have one of your better deep threats. Jamison Williams just made it onto the field as figuring out what to do in this offense and specialized yeah. plays. Oh, and DeAndre Swift's been banged up too. So exactly who you, you can't, you can name all those players and go, who else would it be other than you could say, well, it's Penny Sewell, you know, if, if you're yeah, on Twitter, he's going out for routes, you know, you he's know? going out for routes, but you know, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's, one it's, of those, it's ridiculous that yeah. they're putting up that many points with, with all those points that you just made. So like to answer your question, listen, I, I have, I have a, not a theory cause this isn't like a brand new thing. But I don't know why quarterbacks are drafted and thrown in immediately. And we've talked about this before. So I don't think it's necessarily like it's not a necessity that they need to like draft high. I think their fourth overall pick and their 15th overall pick, I believe, right now. Yeah. And I don't even think they need to get a quarterback in those two picks. Um, just one more stat yeah, out there for, for Jared Goff. Or, yeah, Goff. He's in 20-yard completions. Mahomes is first with 60. Yep. And guess who's second? Yeah. Golf. Yeah. Golf and Burrow are tied at 46, and then Jalen Hurts. Yeah. Like, he's just – he's playing really well. And it has a lot to do with the offensive line because they're playing extremely well. Has, you know, a lot to do with how they're able to run game and gap and zone scheme uh run styles so they're able to to really control the clock they're able to to move the ball on on short uh yardage uh like conversions and and basically be able to continue to get first downs um so you can throw on on first and 10 and you're able to kind of manipulate the defense uh and and you're able to to fully run an offense at like a, like a well-oiled machine. You're, you're utilizing every single position that you need to. And that's why, like, golf is playing well because he has such a good offensive line because they do have a run game um, and they and they know how to run it. Um, so, yeah, my take is they can – they're not they – they shouldn't target a guy like, you know, Max Duggan or Caleb Williams or anything like that. I think that in the third round they go for, like, Tanner McGee or Jaron Hall and they – you know, those guys can sit behind golf for another year. And, like, you, you don't need to throw a rookie out there. When golf is running the offense that needs to be run, he's putting points on the board. Um, he's gotten uh, five wins out of the last six games. Um, they're, like, actually looking to the playoffs. So why not build the rest of your roster? So to answer your question, no, I don't think it's a necessity to draft a quarterback uh like right away or it, it doesn't need to be uh the fir- in the first round i think that that they could get a jaron hall a guy with a big arm that maybe isn't going to be running uh you know a, a billion touchdowns with his legs uh maybe a guy similar to golf that can use his arm yeah i love the take and you know if i were to play devil's advocate at all about it i would say 
at best, maybe you take that 15th pick and you say, mm-hmm. if Anthony Richardson sit in there, you know, a guy who I think manipulates the field a lot better than people characterize, who has that ability and upside to be kind of a dual threat player, but a really great pocket player in addition to that. And you could get him at 15 and you could still get a top defender earlier in the draft and keep adding to that defense. And you let Richardson sit for a year and you let Goff continue to run this offense. To me, that's that would be a nice way of being able to say, we're going to develop the guy right. We're going to let him sit. We're going to get a guy that we really believe in as a first-round value. But we're going to let that first-round talent percolate in the way that we let Aaron Rodgers, we let Drew Brees, we let um, Steve McNair, we, you know, Patrick Mahomes sit for a year and do that. That would be one thing. But the other, and I think it'd be perfectly logical to do, and is more along, keep building the defense like you said, maybe draft someone later yeah. that you can see to develop, and really you develop them with the idea of at worst, we know we're going to get a decent backup out of this guy because as we keep adding, say they do get Tanner McGee in the second round or the third round or Hall in the second or third round. And they're like, we don't, he's not the goods for us. Not quite what we thought, or we think he might be, but we want to wait a little longer than one year because our team's now in a window for the playoffs. Now, I don't know about you, but we've seen plenty of teams where when they've got strong offensive lines, young receivers who can play reliable to good running backs, and the defense is starting to come into its own, well, that's a recipe for those those quarterbacks in their mid to late 30s or maybe early 40s or maybe even one in their mid-40s who might say, you know what? I wouldn't mind finishing my career <laughs> at um not not just down the road from, that took a second yeah just down the road from my alum you know from, yeah, from, from my mean, school um that it could I, you know it could happen and and i just have one other point it's just silly because i can't even think of a i can't think of a tv show to compare it to that's like timely but i when i think of sean mcveigh there's some the word i think of is bougie like, I think he's kind of bougie, um, <laughs> you know, I think that, yeah. and I think in comparison to like Dan Campbell, I feel like that if like something bad happened and you were on a trip with Sean McVay, he's like, he's probably calling triple a, he's probably calling the rental car service. Triple a, he's got a limo coming for us. What yeah, do you mean? Yeah, exactly. Well, he's probably caught, well, if all that didn't work out and we were stuck in somewhere remote He'd probably be he'd probably be pointing the finger at everybody and blaming about how we're all gonna die. Whereas I think Dan Campbell would probably know how to fix the car, um, or say I'm gonna hike ten miles to the nearest town and we'll have someone come pick you guys up. You know, like that to <laughs> me, that's the difference between like McVeigh and Campbell to me. I think McVeigh yeah. would be worried that his hair would be a uh, wouldn't you, be straight. You know, you see that draft that draft house that they have in uh, in L.A. No. You should you should see that house. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> is it on the is it on the level of Cliff Kingsbury's pad? Um, I don't. I never saw his pad. <sighs> no, I I don't even think this is where he lives. It was just a house that they had for the draft. Like this is where like 
maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is where he lives. Maybe yeah. your listeners can uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he was there like just to prep for the draft. And this place, like, and he invited a bunch of people there, um, like after I don't I don't know what it was, some event, but uh, a couple people had a chance had a chance to go there. Um, but yeah, th- this house was like super nice. I don't even think it's his. Yep. But yeah, he's definitely like a, a bougie type of guy. And Campbell is a, you know, he, he's he's a blue collared coach. Yeah. He's that player's coach, like uh, like Andy Reid. You kind of, you know, you would die for him yeah. in a way. And m- so. meanwhile, Bill Belichick's like your uncle Morty, who has you know, you're in his kitchen. The draft <laughs> camp shows his kitchen with the dog sitting there the whole time, but you never see him. Um, you know, he's like the uncle from Home Alone. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, you know, moving forward with this, I mean, I think we've covered that one pretty good (laughs) is, um, you know, one of the one of the things I want to ask you about was Trevor Lawrence. Um, You know, you did a really nice piece on 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 his work. And why is he on the verge of becoming an elite prospect? What have you seen that has you um, going in that direction? I think something clicked uh, not too long ago. Uh, right after week eight, they were uh, they just came off of a loss, three losses uh, in a row: the Colts, the Giants, Denver Broncos. Uh, they went in against the the Raiders, uh, and and something changed where he just really started to understand uh, the defenses, um, and. He, he's having more than one read. He's really going through his reads. Uh, and it's funny because we were talking about that before, like the one read quarterbacks, and you're kind of relying on on like the coach to kind of scheme it open for you. Um, and he was, he was doing a lot of play action. Uh, they were, you know, they were using the run. They were using James Robinson. And last year, you know, Trevor was even advocating for James Robinson to get more touches when Urban Meyer benched him. And I think that he was kind of relying on everything else. Uh, and now he's not using as much play action. Uh, he's going through his reads. Um, and I can't even say the offensive line has played better. I just think that he, like, something clicked in his in his brain where he's just, he's able to kind of, the game is just slowed down for him. He hasn't thrown an interception in his last five games. And that was a big thing in the, last year in the beginning of the season so he hasn't thrown one since week eight um and he he just i don't know it just seems fantastic like with since week nine he has the best completion percentage um he's uh he's the second highest rated qb uh in those last uh five weeks it's just him and doug peterson have just really been on the on the same wavelength um yeah, it's just it's it's really cool to watch. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it seems to me like he's finding the quick solutions to problems in a way that you know veteran quarterbacks often do. Like finding the easy plays, and I think that that's sometimes the key for players who transcend. You know, who get to that point where they're now like annually players you could put in consideration to get top five statistical production and it's where they can where it's not just about whether they can physically or technically execute the difficult plays that fans really enjoy seeing but it's also about 
seeing where the where the the hot read is seeing the the quick mm -hmm. solution to pressure understanding what's the most efficient path to being able to find um to, to gain yardage and it feels like that that's coming quicker to him in a, mm -hmm. in a in a level and i think that's reflected in a lot of the data and some and the observations that you've made about his game and you know i i definitely think he's on his way um, as well and considering what the the level of talent around him I mean Evan Ingram's played well for for Evan Ingram compared to where he was with the Giants <laughs> where he seemed like a half step out of the league Kirk's great Zay Jones is occasionally good Marvin Jones is getting yeah. older but they still need more players I mean yeah it's it's crazy that like they've switched who takes over in each game it's never one player week in that in week out that like you know, that same player is who he relies on. One week it's Zay, one week it's Ingram, one week it's Kirk. I mean, it's never really Marvin Jones, but it was last year. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it just seems like they're plugging in the players and running a lot out of, out of 11 personnel. So it's like they're not, like, using this player in maybe 12 personnel. They're using this player in 11, and then they're, they're plugging guys out, and they're just having different plays for those particular players. Uh, and, and it's really hard for defenses to kind of catch on. So it's just like really dynamic out of one personnel in one look. So defenses aren't really sure, okay, like, uh, you know, which progression are they in now? Like, you know, first on the first play, it was, uh, you know, shallow crosser. And then the next play, he's going to the second level. And then he's going out to the flat. And then now he's going to the – now he's, you know, making a throw – to the end zone. So there, it just seems like there's a lot of progressions and, and he's becoming a lot more confident in those plays that Doug Peterson is calling. That's great. So, so speaking of people who've, you know, they're, they look like that they are on the verge of becoming elite players. Let's talk about some players that we think might rebound who've just had tough years this year. And you think, listen, I, I, they're the ones I'm eyeballing that, that might have a chance to, to rebound in 2023. Well, this guy, uh, it, it's it's tough to really put him on the list uh, because it's it's more about injuries. But I think uh, Keenan Allen is a guy uh, that that I think is going to come back. Um, you know, a lot of people were speculating before the game against uh, the Dolphins, like. Is Tua better than Herbert at this point? Um, and I think kind of like Herbert was able to, to really shut the speculations down uh, last week. Uh, but I think he's been able to do it without his main player in Keenan Allen. He's just missed so many games. He's only played like in the last five, like after week one. Um, so I think it'll just be, it'll be a year for him next year to kind of come back uh, and he'll be able to help Herbert kind of kind of take that next step. And I know we've been saying that for the last couple of years now. This is Herbert's year. This is Herbert's year. Um, but, you know, it kind of wasn't fair given uh, that he lost his best wide receiver. And he's only, he's only in year three. So, I mean, we, we can cut him some slack a little bit, you know. Um, someone that hasn't gotten any slack cut for him is Russell Wilson. And um, certainly when you look at the disaster that Denver has been, you know, early in the year, my thought was I, I, I charted some of those games and 
there were like thir- I think it was like 13 drops that Wilson had dealt with. Pressure was coming mm. in pretty pretty easily. Um, a lot of it didn't seem to be on Wilson, but you know then then the then it seemed like the media wanted to pile on the the corny phoniness type of factor, the off field stuff that you know that people at work really don't care about to the level that that they're making it. Unless maybe you're Richard Sherman, who you know. I mean, all respect to what he did as a as a cornerback, but I think he he likes he likes to have a little drama and have his and be in the media and and have attention. He loves and, it. Yeah, so he thrives off of that a little bit. Maybe he didn't like the fact that Russ was getting a little more than he was um, on that level. I don't know, but I would agree that Russell Wilson, obviously, you know, they know if he hasn't been accessible to his teammates, they know if he they would have liked him to be a little bit different than how he was personally. Um, and there are certainly some outcomes they would have liked to have differently in ball games, even though they were one a play away from two consecutive Super Bowl wins. So it's not like, and Russ had a lot to do with that just as much as the defense had a lot to do with that. But that said, looking at Denver two weeks ago and watching him against um, Carolina, it was pretty awful. And, I mean, I watched it. Then I went and watched QB schools, you know, JTL Sullivan's version of it as well, like his analysis. And, you know, the things you, you know, things you saw there with Wilson, you know, the footwork was sloppy. You certainly saw some cases where he just looked kind of slow. He looked like, you know, his, but you also saw receivers not running routes at the depths they should, the, the blocking schemes being awful. And after a while, I think no matter who you are as a quarterback, I've seen it with Matt Ryan when he was still statistically good with the Falcons, where if he wasn't getting protection, after a while, your game starts to break down and you start to make decisions that are sloppy because you can't, you don't believe in your offensive line. Um, and I think that that was going on with Wilson. Um, he's got injured receivers. He's got a lot of young players who are unfamiliar with being in starting lineups for any extended length of time. And it's just been an unmitigated disaster on all fronts. So with the amount of money they spent on Russell Wilson, though, and especially after last week before the concussion, Russell Wilson looked more like the guy I saw in the first three weeks. I think that we're at a point, Laurie, where next year Nathaniel Hackett will probably be gone. We'll probably see a, a new offense. There'll be more probably work done to fit it with what Wilson does well. You'll see the receivers probably be hopefully healthier, maybe add to what they can, you know, they'll get Javante Williams back. Maybe they can upgrade this line. There's a lot they got to do when they don't have a lot of picks at the top of the draft, I think, to really do that. But there's, I think there's enough there that I, I, I'm more on the I'm more on the side of giving the benefit of the doubt that Russell Wilson will have a rebound year. Maybe not top five, but I think he can be a producer that is more along in the you know top seven to ten quarterbacks statistically. I wanna I wanna agree with that. Like <laughs> you look at 2018, 2019, 2020. He you know ten wins, eleven wins, twelve wins. He had. It's not like he's been bad, and that's why like they traded him. Um, yeah, they went seven and seven and ten in two thousand one, uh, but before then they were 
riding high. Like, they were the Seahawks. I mean, you know, when Russell Wilson was on the Seahawks. You know, getting 10 wins, 11 wins, 12 wins. You can't do that with a bad quarterback. Yeah. Um, but this year, he's just been he's just been bad. Uh, I, but that's what happens, you know, like you said, when, when you have a, a team surrounding you that isn't good, you kind of play to that level. Um, it's just, it seems like everything's getting tipped at the line of scrimmage. You just, I don't know. It just doesn't, it doesn't look well. It doesn't look good. Um, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, he is able to bounce back because I do think that he has it in him still. Yeah. So who do you think's coming back down to earth after a, a strong season right now? Uh, Daniel Jones. That That's going to be my guy. And not that he's playing like unreal or anything. Like he has the, the best running back in the league. Well, one of the best running backs in the league. You know, he's finally, uh, you know, Saquon Barkley. He, he's, he, you know, he's finally playing at the level that we were all hoping he would. Um, you know, Daniel Jones, though, like he's played really well. I just don't think he's dynamic enough. Um, it seems like their playbook is pretty bland. Um, you know, it's it's play action or nothing, to be honest. And I just don't think that that's sustainable uh, in the long run. He hasn't thrown interceptions, but the offense isn't, like, they're not forcing him to make these crazy throws in tight windows. It's like if the tight end doesn't pop out and he's not there to, like, bail his, his ass out, then, you know, he's throwing it away or he's throwing it in the ground, or he's throwing it to Saquon Barkley in the flat. Um, and that's why they wanted Saquon to be more of a, like, he, they wanted his responsibility to grow because they knew what they had in Daniel Jones. And I'm not saying that, you know, the Giants aren't doing well right now. I mean, I just think that their loss to Philly was really putting them, like, as a team, back down to earth. Like, listen, you got you got a good record, but the NFC East has the easiest schedule in the entire NFL, um, and I think that their wins kind of reflect that, uh, and they lost to teams that are on the brink of, you know, that could make a Super Bowl run. So they lost to Dallas uh, early in the year. They lost to Seattle, um, who obviously Daniel or Geno Smith has been playing great. They lost to the to the Detroit Lions. The Lions, though, you know, that offensive line. Um, they lost to Dallas again. They tied Washington. Come on. And then they, they got their, you know, behinds whipped against Philly. So I just think that next year, um, you know, they better be looking for another quarterback because I don't think that uh, if they stick with Daniel Jones, it might be a disaster. Yeah, I think they're going to draft another quarterback too, and I think he's he heads the top of the list of guys who will fall back to earth just because, you know, yes, you could look at this and say they were probably hoping that Kenny Galladay and Kadarius Toney would be their lead receivers with Sterling Shepard, but Sterling Shepard always seems to get hurt. Um, Kenny Galladay was, you know, believed Same with that, him, yeah, getting hurt too. Yeah, him being, all of them getting hurt, really. And then Wandale Robinson being gone for the year just as he was starting to come on, tearing his ACL. And Daniel Bellinger is what he is. Yeah, as a tight end, I mean, at San Diego State, he was a decent blocker who get out in the flat and get you a few yards after the catch. He's not going to stretch the field for you. He's not a matchup um, problem one-on-one -on -one against cornerbacks or safeties or, you know, some good linebackers can cover him. So, I mean, he's a nice dump-down option. But that's all, you know, other than that, I mean, certainly Darius Slayton has played well beyond his expectations. 
Richie James oh, is, a, is a decent contributor, but you're right. That's all they got. So next year when they have more and they expect to have more and everybody knows the system and Daniel Jones is still doing what Daniel Jones does, yeah, I think they'll be they'll be ready to replace him. So I'm there with you on that. Um, the The only other player that kind of comes to mind for me and is who we talked about before would be Tua. And it's only because, Ooh. and it's only the idea that maybe if they, that's if they can't adjust to what we talked about earlier, you know, they can't, defenses adjust and he can't really do it, you know, what happens then? So, so yeah. You know what, you know what happens then? I do. Skyler. Yeah. Skyler Thompson, yeah. baby. That's what I'm hoping. But, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not as contractually obligated to mention him like I used to be with Chad Kelly way back in the day. But who, who by the way, you know, oh, made wow. the game Chad winning Kelly. throw in the game in the Grey Cup. So, um, you know, well, I may still be be contractually obligated to mention him at least once a month now. But, um, but speaking of, you know, just quarterbacks in general, who, who are some backup quarterbacks who's played – you know they've played well um, this year, or they've had moments to be able to show their stuff. Who are some of them that you think um, might have the best future in the NFL, if at all? Like you know, might you know, and some of the people that we talked about off the air were Mike White, Brock Purdy, Anthony Brown, Brett Rippon, John Wolford, Cooper Rush, Bailey Zappi. Who, who on that list impressed you? Skylar Thompson. Skylar Thompson. There we go. Um, well, for one, I, I really liked Bailey Zapp. Um, I, uh, I think that he, he, he does offer some things that Mac Jones uh, doesn't offer. Like he, he, he doesn't put the ball in, uh, in, in jeopardy uh, when he does throw downfield. It seems like he's more accurate, but he doesn't take those chances uh that mac jones does and sometimes those chances turn out well for mac uh but sometimes they don't so um i don't think i think bailey zabby should get a chance somewhere else um and i think he could be a guy that could i mean it's tough because bill belichick is a really good coach so it's like is he playing well in that system um but i think he does deserve a chance to uh, you know, to, to to at least get a role somewhere else. Um, there are some really good quarterbacks coming out uh, in this year's draft, um, but you know, I I really like what uh, what Zappy was able to do in in the in the four games that he played this season. Three of them he had a quarterback rating of a hundred or more. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I like. You know, a guy coming in there for only four games and, and really stepping it up like that uh, is is pretty good. It was only that game against Chicago uh, where he didn't play as well, and that is a little concerning against Chicago. But at the same time, I think uh, I think Zappy, yeah, I think he should get a chance somewhere. For sure, you know, and and Zappy to me was always that guy that when he expects the rush, he's very good. When it's unexpected, he can he needs to get a little bit better about how he reacts to some things. But the, that arm strength thing that you brought up is really the the sticking point between him being 
maybe a, a future starter, but or being a journeyman type of guy. And I think there's still time to see how he can continue to work through that. So that th work in the pocket is so good. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And and I would argue that Brock Purdy certainly has that good work in the pocket too. Now he's got a good offensive line mm -hmm. around him. It's only two games in. We've got a lot more to see with how defenses adjust. And I think like Zappi, his arm strength is kind of the, the limitation for him. Um, he's not going to be, and unlike Zappi though, he thinks he has a, a bigger arm than he does sometimes. Um, <laughs> so he, he will try a little too hard to make certain throws that maybe he shouldn't. But then the, but I'll mention, you know, I'll mention Mike White. Um, while, you know, we can pour one out from Mark Schofield and, and mention Brett Rippon, who I think is really technically sound and a great play action guy. And if you put him in Brock Purdy's place, we would probably see similar results from from Rippon. I think he's an underrated guy. But I, but Mike White, what he did against Buffalo last week, especially playing with what was probably broken ribs. I haven't looked to see what it, it looked Ooh, pretty obvious. He, that hit, man. Yeah. And you know that was rough. Yeah, but he he's good in the pocket. He knows where to check it down. He seems to show good awareness. And you know, like a lot of backups who start well, and then they have some struggles, and then people just write them off, and then they get to play another year or two later and start to look good again. Part of it is you need playing time. You need that playing time to like um, finish your development and and backups get it infrequently. So I think that Mike White is someone that I'd also kind of keep an eye on out for because I remember even watching him at Western Kentucky and thinking he had some of the more impressive plays of manipulating defenses under pressure that I had seen that year in his draft class. Um, and I know, I remember he and Cooper Rush were two guys that caught my eye to a degree, but it was more White, I think, than Rush. Who, who really stood out. So those are those are some interesting guys to consider. What about, what about let's wrap this up with T.Y. Hilton. Um, you know, you brought up a great topic for this is, you know, what do you think he's going to provide for the Cowboys when you consider their roster? Um, is there anything that you think that he can do that the Cowboys don't really have in a wide receiver right now? I think just his route running in general. Uh, and his leadership uh, can can help the Cowboys. It's tough, though, right now uh, because we still kind of don't really know uh, what the Cowboys are. How could they play so bad against a one-win team? Uh, that's really concerning. Dak Prescott, um, you know, like to the point where, like, it doesn't matter how good a, a route is. If the in if the accuracy isn't there and Prescott just like hasn't really been on the money lately, um, but I think T. Y. Hilton like is he done? That's really the big question. Um, he's he's he only had three hundred yards last year, but he also had Carson Wentz throwing to him, which is like totally an erratic quarterback. Right. Um, but I think T. Y. Hilton can can get under defenses. I think he still has the speed. Uh, I. I think that, you know, he can do something. But I think the biggest question is, how come he didn't get picked up by anybody yeah. this season? That's one thing that I don't know the answer to. Um, I was actually thinking 
like why wouldn't the Jaguars maybe go for him? Because they didn't really have anybody, but obviously they picked up Christian Kirk, so that's like a similar uh, type of guy, so you're not going to go after T.Y. Hilton. Um, but, you know, he, he is a guy that can come out of the slot, uh, T.Y., and I think he is able to get open. Um, he uh, he played with, uh, with one of the best uh, wide receivers um, in the league um, from the Colts. Reggie Wayne. Yeah, was it Reggie Wayne that I'm thinking of? Um, yeah, because I don't think he played with Marvin. Um, but, you know, he, he, he was able to have that leadership uh, from his teammates because he's been in the league 10 years now. He got drafted, I think, in 2011, 2012. Yeah. Uh, so he's been around a while. And I think that with all of the young wide receivers that are on the Cowboys right now, uh, I think it's good to have a guy in the locker room like T.Y. Hilton. Um, I would just like to know why he wasn't picked up by any other team um you know in this season and and obviously i don't know the answer to this but i'd love to take a hazard to guess just for the fun of it and and what i would estimate is at 33 years old a lot of the teams that are not can know that they may not be contending or have a young nucleus in their offense might just say we're not going to do that because we want to make sure that we give our younger players playing time um, and we want to and we want to give them the opportunities that T.Y. Hilton might take up in addition to the fact that he has had some tough injuries with his feet and ankles. So maybe they're worried about him being um, able to play a, an entire season and provide the contributions that they would lean on for the amount of money that they would have to pay him um, for an entire year at, at, at his level of ability and his age um but when on the field ty hilton was one of my favorite receivers of the past 10 15 years if i were to say a top 20 of receivers he'd definitely be in that top 20 and he reminds me a lot of two players kind of a mixture of two players one is is cd lamb and the other is is jalen waddle because he had that speed like waddle um they didn't use him as much from the slot as he started to really develop into his career, but he had that kind of really field-stretching speed from the slot that was dangerous. But he also showed a real toughness at the catch point to go up and win targets on the boundary that made him a good go-to receiver for Andrew Luck, you know, during their prime years together. Um, he could really go up and win a ball for a guy his size. So when you look at him for Dallas, you kind of get a player who's a combination of all three receivers that I would look at who are the most dangerous on the field. And that would be um, Lamb, Gallup, and Cavante Turpin um, in terms of what Turpin can do after the catch. Um, now, the you know, Washington really just has never been a great route runner. He's been, he's an all pro at the catch point. He's like a, he's a free agent level player everywhere else um, with his game. And that's what kind of makes him a tease for a lot of folks in terms of his in terms of his ability because they see the highlight reel catches, but everything that goes on underneath his game just isn't there. But with Hilton, they get a guy that maybe they can pick their spots with in terms of how they use him situationally. And he creates enough redundancy for that team that it's a mm -hmm. pick your po there's some uh, they can create enough pick your poison situations where He's going to be able to open up Gallup or open up Lamb mm -hmm. even more than what they had before. And then on top of it, 
he is reliable on a lot of routes that maybe he gets matched up against a, a cornerback who's just ill-equipped to deal with the veteran on the uh, on his level and you can get the kind of play out of him that they hope they would get out of Beckham but Beckham's knee just wasn't good enough so I I, I like the pick um, I don't know if, like, for those who are listening for fantasy football, I don't know if there's real fantasy value between now and the next three weeks. You might get something, but it's going to be real hit or miss at best. Yeah, it, it will be hit or miss um, because I think it's a lot of what you're saying. I think it's like, let's put him in this position. Let's line him up here um, to be able to, to, to get other guys open. Um, and, you know, coming into the season and a lot of his, like, the first half of his of his career, he's like a typical slot guy, but he was playing on the outside like the last four years, so he's able to line up anywhere. Um, and I think that's how the 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 Dallas Cowboys will use him. So, I yeah, I, I agree with you for for fantasy takes. That's a that's a little tough. Um, obviously, I guess uh, yeah, I I probably wouldn't. That's a, that's a risk, especially this late in the season. It would be like playoffs. For, for these guys uh, in fantasy looking to pick him up. And I just don't see him getting a ton. It would be more of a of like a real football's contribution and not a fantasy contribution. Like he makes a critical catch like on third and three to like keep the chains moving, but that's not going to get you any fantasy points. But it's critical in like the game of football, you know. Listen, you know, it, uh, this has been a great conversation and I'm just going to end it this way. Um, because I would be remiss if I don't do this in terms of um, my business manager, which is to say, look, if you want to, we talk off about football and fantasy as separate kind of things and do the separation with that on the show. But if you want something that's going to provide you kind of an integration with real football and fantasy, the Rookie Scouting Portfolio Pre-Draft, Post-Draft Publication Package is available for pre-order um, at a $19.95 rate um, which is a discount rate for its normal 21 20 2195 price and that rate will be available through the 22nd of this month um, you know if you're not aware of the rsp it's both you know it, i saw for 1995 you get a pre-draft and post-draft edition the pre-draft comes out april 1st the post-draft edition comes out one week no later than one week after the draft it's a unique evaluation process that takes a, a departure from what you normally see with scouting guides. Um, it's rooted in management best practices and what you get with it includes, you know, position rankings, detailed profiles of at least 150 skill players at quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. You get rankings that include tier groupings, overrated, underrated, developmental prospects, um, chapters that are dedicated to each position and their recent draft history and talking about what people look for in those positions and how that's changing I, my process is transparent and you get a glossary of defined criteria people always marvel over the depth of content that you get with it we're talking about you know 900 pages worth of content that you see coming out on april 1st it has more than um you know one year's worth of value especially for redraft and, and dynasty players who are looking for guys who may be below the radar um, but you get all this detail on them and meanwhile while major media is saying who is this guy we don't even know who he is you can have the jump on understanding what they're about and you know the rsp has given you 
you know, in the past, players that I've hit on that maybe a little bit, I've been a higher than maybe the consensus on guys like Chris Olave, Justin Jefferson, Dalvin Cook, A.J. Brown, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Nick Chubb, Michael Thomas, DeAndre Hopkins, Cooper Cup. As far back as you can go back to 2006, I've been doing this now for 18 years. The RSB is actually legal to vote next year. So, um, yeah, see, there you go. I might have to send it off to college or trade school at this point. But um, you can get it again for $21.95. A regular price, a lot of people like to wait till that because they feel like it's a $50 value, if not more, and they want to pay me a fairer rate. But if you're new and you want to, you know, you want to try it out. You've been on the fence because you've liked this podcast, the work that Lori and I do, or you like the work that you see on the RSP film room. Check it out. It's available at mattwaldman.com. You can pre-order it. You'll get, you'll create a password, and then I will email you when it's ready for download. It's been available for download every April 1st since 2006, and that's when I started the publication. No reason to stop now. So again, mattwaltman.com. Thanks again for supporting what we do. And, uh, you know, on behalf of Lori, I appreciate, you know, we appreciate what you guys do here. You can find, you know, Lori's work at TD Wire. You can find her on Twitter. Um, and, you know, we we appreciate you. And her, her Twitter handle is Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E-F-I-T-Z-P-T-R-C-K, just without the A. So just think of it from that standpoint there and uh, you'll find great work there and you guys have a good week.